Welcome, I'm Prudence Robertson, and this is EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Expanding the pro-life mission, Susan B. Anthony List takes on a new name, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, as they expand and prepare for a post-Roe world. We're joined by SBA's president, Marjorie Dannenfelser, who shares the details behind this new name and what it means for the movement and the country. Momentum to advance pro-life laws. Pro-life governors around the country prepare for the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade as they await the final decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. We speak to the governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts, whose state plans to ban abortion completely. Addressing social issues. A new book takes on some of the most pressing social issues of our time, most importantly, abortion. The author of the book, Father Jeff Kirby, joins us to discuss how you can navigate today's contentious world with conviction and a clear conscience. Our friends at Susan B. Anthony List have some exciting news to share. They are expanding their mission and have taken on a new name, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. The rebranding comes on the brink of what we hope and pray will be a post-Roe America. Since 1992, the team at Susan B. Anthony has been an essential part of electing a pro-life president, securing a pro-life majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, and supporting pro-life candidates on the state and federal levels who the American people then entrust with advancing pro-life laws. And joining us now with more details about the expansion is our good friend, the foundress and president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, Marjorie Dannenfelser. Marjorie, thanks for joining me. Tell me about the motivation to change your group's name and what this expansion is going to look like. Well, thank you, Prudence. And um, thank you for saying it correctly because we're all chanting it out loud after 30 years of having one name and shifting to another. We've, we're in a training camp here. <laughs> but the movement is really reflective of, of the overall pro-life movement and where Susan B. Anthony in particular needs to be. So Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. I think when, I, uh, when, when we started talking about what our name should be, it should reflect what we, what we will be working for and praying for all across America, that we can now, with a great deal of hope, say that we will have a truly pro-life nation that will be a beacon to the rest of the world. And that's where we should be. We should never have been exporting abortion and leading others in a strong way in the wrong direction. We should be leading the world. And certainly we begin with the pro-life movement, uh, which is greatly expanding every single day, Leading, uh, leading the country, leading governors and legislators all over the country and our Congress into passing laws that will save lives and saving and preserving and uh, really serving the, the needs of women. Amen. And speak to me about the beginnings of Susan B. Anthony List and how much you all have grown and evolved. Well, Susan B. Anthony, as you can see, is named for the suffragette who was very pro-life. All of her colleagues, all of her compatriots were very pro-life. They understood well that you never break the bond between woman and child. And when you do, there are repercussions for all the culture around. Uh, the Catholic Church has done a beautiful job of delineating what the culture of death actually means. And that's what that is. We're coming full circle now to a place where we can reaffirm that beautiful bond that we've come full circle to rename again our organization, Susan B. Anthony, a pro-life, woman-centered organization where we will corral our troops. We're expanding in our organization. We're replicating everything that we've done on the federal level, on the state level, starting with the states that will be most ambitious for life. 
uh, meeting with those governors, those state legislators, making sure we understand the laws in each of those states, which each have its own fingerprint, um, and making sure that we're working alongside our friends to do what we've done on the federal level and a place where now it's not theoretical. We right. stand verge of saving millions and millions of lives. It's yes. amazing. Yes, and as you're saying, a major part of this growth is gonna be your activity in the states. Which states in particular are you guys prioritizing here at the start of this expansion? Well, there are 22 states that we think that move, can move very quickly, and, it, and it's a long list. It's, it, you can probably guess a lot of the states. They would be Alabama, Missouri, Kansas. Um, uh, there are 22 of them, so I won't list them all. And you may live in one, Mississippi, clearly. But what's tricky is that in each state, because it's been so long since they have not been allowed to enact their, the will of the people into the law, there are tricky things that, uh, that have to do with how that law will go into effect. The other side will be fighting tooth and nail, even what looks like an easy state. Mm. So then there'll be um, eight states that are not ready to move quickly because they have some kind of problem, um, like something in their state constitution. Uh, Kansas is actually the first stop in August where we're gonna try to address that deep problem in Kansas. Will the people wants to pass a very strong pro-life protection, but the constitution uh, as, it has been as it has been interpreted uh, could be a major problem for that. So each state prudence is so different from the other that it's like being a doctor or being a mom of many kids. Each one is very different. And so we have to look at each one in its own unique way, make sure we have a plan for each alongside all of our allies in all of those states. Yes, and as you go into these states, in terms of advancing policy, mm -hmm. is the strategy changing at all? For so many years, many in the pro-life movement have advocated for limits, just limits on abortion, 15 weeks, 20 weeks. But now we've already seen governors and state legislators moving to ban abortion altogether. <laughs> so how is this like surge of pro-life momentum shaping SBA-lists' expanding strategy? Well, the beautiful thing is when you allow the wheels of democracy to turn, you can actually see consensus in each state making its way into the law and saving the lives of children and serving those women. So the consensus in each state is all that matters. Alabama gets to save all Alabama children. We worry about North Carolina children because they have a governor that won't allow any limit to pass in their state. So we obviously have to address that. So what it comes down to is that in every legislature, every state legislature and in our national legislature, the Congress, call is to be as ambitious as we can possibly be because we don't want to fall short of ambition and we don't want to overstep asking for something that leads to ending up with nothing. Mm. We build consensus, pass the law that reflects that body and the will of the people, and we're going to save a lot of lives. As many lives as possible. And Marjorie, we have less than a minute left, but for over five years now, EWTN and Susan B. Anthony have been working together via this show, EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, to ensure that Americans know what's happening as we work to end abortion in our country. Why is that mission so important right now? There is nothing that I value more than the relationship that we have with EWTN. In the very beginning, we decided we want to take this battle out of the D.C. area and make sure that it is real in the living rooms of homes all across the country, among the faithful, people who care, so that everyone can be actively engaged. And look where we are. That uh, Those few years, those handful of years, are the biggest surge in the pro-life movement in its history since Roe versus Wade, not in any small part, and in large part due to this 
beautiful partnership. And I am so proud of it. And I'm proud of you, Prudence, because I know your background. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marjorie Dannenfelser of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Speaking of pro-life momentum, we now turn to Nebraska, where some of the nation's most pro-life people reside. The governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts, has vowed to protect the unborn and has been very vocal about his plans when Roe versus Wade is hopefully overturned very soon. In a press release issued in March, the Republican governor said the abortion industry via Roe versus Wade has, quote, tried their best to normalize a culture of death where the most vulnerable among us have fallen victim to the lie that one person's so-called right to privacy trumps the right of another to live. He went on to explain that this is not the type of culture that Nebraskans have cultivated. They are pro-life. We touched base with the governor who told us about his state's post-row plans. Let's take a look. And joining me now is Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts. Governor Ricketts, thanks so much for joining me today. You recently announced that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, if and when it is, you're going to work with the Nebraska State Legislature to call a special session. What do you plan to do during that special session? Well, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, as we hoped, what we want to do is work with uh, Speaker of my legislature, Mike Hilgers, and the legislature to do more to protect preborn babies. Well, that's good news for us in the pro-life movement. And I know that you believe life begins at conception and every child deserves the right to live. Even if a child has been conceived due to rape or incest or some other unfortunate circumstance, what's your response to people who say that this would force women to give birth to their rapist's baby? Well, first of all, those are babies too, and they deserve their chance at life. And it's really one of those things where there's no other where area where we punish somebody for the crime of another. And by taking the life of this child, you're basically punishing that child for the crime of somebody else. And, you know, don't get me wrong, rape and incest are, are horrible crimes. They are crimes, but it's not the child's fault. And so we shouldn't punish the child for the crime of an adult. Mm, it makes sense. And states are strategizing in different ways to protect unborn life, even before Roe versus Wade has been overturned here. Some are limiting abortion at 20 or 15 weeks. And the Guttmacher Institute reports that as many as 26 states want to ban abortion altogether when Roe is overturned. And Nebraska is one of them. Why has your legislature in Nebraska chosen this plan of action to ban abortion altogether? Well, we actually had a one of those so-called trigger bills in front of the legislature earlier this year that would have banned abortion. We fell two votes short of getting that passed. Um, unfortunately, one of our pro-life senators actually was in the hospital, so he couldn't make it in, but we still would have been one vote short. So that's why I say we'll, uh, you know, serving Roe versus Wade does get overturned. We'll be working on a bill that we can pass to do more to protect preborn babies. What that looks like right now, I can't tell you because we have to get the Supreme Court ruling first to let us know what we're going to be able to do. But then I'll work with my legislature and see what we can come back with. Sure, absolutely. And talk to me about how Nebraskans are ready for a post-Roe America. You know, we're in June now, but I understand you proclaimed May as foster care month. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Nebraska is a pro-life state. You can see it when you drive down the highways and you, you see the, you know, the roadside signs talking about 
being pro-life and protecting babies. You can see it by the way that we have folks show up our Walk for Life. You can see it, the uh, prayer warriors that show up at abortion clinics to pray for the women that are going in there. Uh, you can see it just the way we treat each other day to day, whether it was through the floods we had in 2019 or the pandemic of the last couple of years. Nebraskans care about each other. And, you know, for nearly 50 years now, we've been praying for Roe versus Wade, which is a horrible constitutional decision to be overturned so that we would have the ability here in Nebraska to make the determination about how we're going to regulate abortion. Mm. And Governor Ricketts, many in the pro-life movement agree that the prevalence of abortion in America points to a bigger cultural problem that we have. How are you working in Nebraska to cultivate a society that wants to protect and nurture strong families? Yeah, absolutely. We, we do a lot of work just in general in state government to show that we are taking care of the people that need our help. Uh, one of the things we've done, for example, is a community collaborative approach called Bring Up Nebraska, where we work with nonprofits, government agencies, uh, and everybody in a specific community to be able to get the families early on when they're having problems, say a drug abuse problem, so that we can have an intervention, get them substance abuse uh, you know, treatment before it becomes an issue for the child so we can keep those families together. You know, when you remove a child from a family, even if it's for the child's safety, the child feels punished. So our goal is to be more preventative, to get to those families earlier, get them the services they need, you know, wrap those the arms of the community around them so that they don't have to actually get interfere, you know, to have come into the child welfare system. We want to keep them out of the child welfare system. And in fact, uh, between 2016 and 2020, while just about everywhere else in the United States saw increasing numbers of children in foster homes. We actually saw declining numbers of kids in out-of-home care because we were being successful in keeping those families together. Mm, so beautiful, and we certainly hope that other states follow Nebraska's lead when it comes to protecting life. Governor Pete Ricketts, thanks for joining us. God bless. Great. Thank you very much. The New York Times recently published a piece titled, Men Have a Lot to Lose When Roe Falls. Written by, quote, medical sociologist Andrea Becker, the piece implies that men should be sharing their abortion stories just as much as women are, because access to abortion has many, quote, invisible benefits for men. Becker writes that men whose girlfriends or wives had access to abortion could be happier, richer, and more self-satisfied, and that men should be encouraged to join in the fight for, quote, reproductive rights. And and joining me now to discuss this is Ryan Bomberger, founder of the Radiance Foundation and Emmy Award-winning creator. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. I would love if you could just help me unpack some of these claims. First, what do you think about the premise of this article, that men whose partners have abortion are going to be happier, richer, more successful? It's so preposterous, because those are the only things that, that matter, getting richer, having the educational attainment. And plus, it's a false sort of proposition to say that you can't get your higher degree unless you kill your unborn child. Mm. I mean, it's it's an insane thing, because what they're doing is celebrating a man who doesn't actually play the role that he's designed to play, and part of that is protector. Right. And you have to keep in mind who's writing this. I mean, Andrea Becker works for the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. I think that's the name of the, the center out of uh, California. Mm that's radically pro-abortion. They actually train abortionists on new methods. That's what they do. Their whole thing is about abortion and promoting abortionists. So keep that in mind when reading an article like this that's saying that there are these invisible benefits yes. for men. Yeah, so very it's, it's all nonsense. Right. Really and what do you have to say to men who believe, actually believe that abortion is the easiest and the best thing that they could advise their wife or their girlfriend to do? It's the worst thing that you can do because it it forces you to, to deny who you are and it forces you to deny who a woman is. Women are created to 
be able to conceive and to nurture that life. And men are there to protect in part. Not that women don't protect, but I would say to a man, step up and own own up to your responsibility. I mean, the reason we have the culture that we have today, a culture of death and a culture of abandonment, is because of this lie, this embrace of Roe v. Wade that says it gives women equality. No, it actually gives men license to have sex and run. Right. So as a father of four, I mean, the first thing I, I think of when, when a situation or a crisis arises is I want to step in and be a stabilizing force. And I know there are a lot of guys who feel like they're not in that situation, but there are resources out there so that they're not alone, that they feel, I know a lot of, a lot of guys feel like, I can't do this. But you know what? Humanity, this is what we face all the time. We often think or see something that's difficult. And we say, we can't do that. How, how do we do that? Well, that's why there are systems of support, pregnancy centers, maternity homes, adoption agency, churches, parachurch organizations. There are resources to help men get through. Yes. And women, of course, because right. it takes, obviously, a male and a female right. to procreate. Those resources are out there. And, you know, Miss Becker also mentioned that, quote, pregnancy and childbirth are 14 times as deadly as abortion and is particularly dangerous for black women. And I also recently read an AP article this week. It profiled a pro-abortion black man who has literally dedicated his life at his job to making sure black women and black girls have more abortions. What do you think about that? It's all insane. I mean, first of all, you keep in mind that the, the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health is behind the bogus, the absolutely debunked study, the Turnaway study, which she references in the article but right. doesn't reference it by name. She links to it. The Turnaway study was, was the one that she's drawing from to say that women benefit more, that they arise out of poverty, they get better educational attainment. But that study, 70% of the respondents did not participate in the study. It's it's been debunked. So when she goes into the whole thing about abortion is safer than childbirth, that's been debunked by the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, among other medical institutions. Sure. It's You can't compare abortion with childbirth. There, there are two things that are actually incomparable. And then, of course, the go-to, exploiting deaths in the black community, maternal, maternal deaths. And you're talking, people have to understand, we're talking about 861 maternal deaths in one year among all you know, white women, black women, Hispanic, any, any woman. And among black women, it's 258 deaths. There are over 300,000 abortions in the black community. Mm -hmm. These maternal deaths, many of which, 60%, according to the CDC, are preventable. You can't use that to somehow, you don't exploit a tragedy to promote another tragedy. Right. And so when, when Becker uses this as somehow some way to, to promote and push this nonsense that men benefit mm -hmm. from abortion, that women benefit from abortion, it's all predicated on a lie. Right, yeah. And, you know, we're seeing, um, just shifting gears a little bit, so much violence from the pro-abortion side right now as we are anticipating, hopefully, the end of Roe versus Wade. Right. And I'd love to hear from you. What should a man's response to be to all this violence? And I know we just found out this week that there was an armed man outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home. He was arrested. But how should men be responding? Well, I think as a nation, we saw how men should have responded in Uvalde with the, the horrible mass shooting. Sure. Men who failed to rush in and risk their lives to save others. Because people understand that this is a design of man. And so when we look at the violence against you know these justices, which... President Biden has been completely silent on, by the way. His administration has thrown some little asides to it, but they've actually encouraged it as long as they're peaceful, even though it actually breaks federal law. We shouldn't stand for this. The, we should not tolerate anything like this. The DOJ should be, I know they made a statement, but the DOJ should actually have been out 
long before something like this happened. And the problem is they're allowing this to happen. It's happening against pregnancy centers. In fact, some of our friends up in Buffalo, Compass Care, just yesterday, I believe, their, their medical clinic was firebombed by this radical pro-abortion group. This is what is believed by the radical pro-abortion group, right. Jane's Revenge. So men should be standing up and saying, this is not okay. Violence to solve any social issue is never okay. Yes, could not agree more. Well, we need more men like you in the pro-life movement. Thank you so much, Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation. Thank you, Prudence. Coming up, pro-abortion advocates claim federal, state, and local authorities will monitor abortion-seeking women via social media platforms if Roe versus Wade is overturned. I speak out next. Plus, we speak to the author of a new book which addresses the preeminence of abortion and explains why as Catholics, we must seek to end abortion above all other injustices. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. The pro-abortion media is warning women that soon, big tech might use facial recognition and surveillance to track them down and deny them abortions. That is this week's Speak Out segment. Time magazine recently profiled an Arizona abortion activist named Alejandra Pablos. She holds regular Instagram live sessions from her phone where people can join to shout their abortions in an echo chamber of pro-death talking points. Pablos is also an undocumented immigrant, and the title of this article is very misleading because it seems that the real intent of the piece was to conflate these two highly contentious issues, abortion and immigration. Pablos fears that soon she will not only have to be worried about being detained due to her immigration status, but also because she serves as an abortion doula and drives women to and from abortions, aiding them in killing their babies. Because she documents most of her life on her phone, she's worried the government will track her down. It's important to note that Arizona already has a law limiting all abortions after 15 weeks, so if she's helping facilitate late-term abortions, she's already breaking the law. Plus, do we really expect the federal government and big tech to use social media to punish pro-abortion people when they have a ghastly record of censoring pro-life groups? Doesn't seem likely. This piece ignores reality. Overturning Roe will simply return a healthy debate on abortion back to the states. A new book, Sanctify Them in Truth, by Father Jeff Kirby, takes on key issues in our society today. In his book, Father Kirby highlights the importance of addressing abortion above all other issues. The book guides readers through church teaching on life and equips readers with the tools and resources to navigate today's contentious world that is against the Catholic Church, its truth and its beauty. And we are joined now by Father Jeff Kirby, author of Sanctify Them in Truth. Father Kirby, thanks for joining us. Tell us about your book and what you hope readers will take away from it. Yes, thank you, Prudence, for this opportunity. Uh, this book really comes from the trenches. It started actually as a homily series from emails from parishioners to me saying, Father, could you please address some of these issues, uh, issues that they were getting from coworkers or their neighborhoods or homeowners associations or on the sideline of youth sports events. And they're like, Father, please help us to, to understand what the church teaches. So, uh, so the book really comes from the trenches. So it seeks to address the issues that Christians are facing in, in everyday life. So from the LGBTQ plus movement to immigration to critical race theory to questions of abortion to gender equality. Each of these issues, the church has an answer. 
to to these social questions. And so, in this book, I wanted to present as thoroughly as possible, as readably as possible. Uh, the answers of the church uh, to these uh, social questions. Mm, very important. And you write that science makes it clear that life begins at conception. Can you explain how you address this truth when pro-abortion advocates come up against you and choose to differ, not just from a scientific perspective, but also a moral one? Yes. So here at my parish, uh, we actually go, we pray in front of the local abortion facility every month as an entire parish family. We go several hundred people. And, and so that confrontation you're speaking about is actually a very real experience in, in my own uh, ministry. And I think that you know, oftentimes we, we appeal to the science, to embryology, and if we look at ultrasound uh, technology, it's clear that, that life begins conception. It's clear that this is a human being. We try to speak that truth as, as charitably as possible. And in terms of the moral argument that you know, we, we share this human dignity, like we can't argue for human dignity in any other aspect if we don't argue for the, for the dignity of all human life especially at its most vulnerable and, and beginning stages. So we attempt to have these conversations, but so oftentimes what happens is uh, attempts at, at civil discourse become appeals to emotion, become name-calling, and, and oftentimes as we are trying to seek, you know, share the truth, to speak the truth, uh, oftentimes uh, we have these uh, names thrown at us, and, and, and yet in spite of that, we try as best we can to present the truth, to present the gospel, and to have our arguments in, in place so that we have a peace even as we're being yelled at or called, being called names, that we can try as best we can to, to, to share this truth with others. Yes, and Father, we recently saw some disturbing videos circulating on social media of events titled Drag the Kids to Pride. These are events that are drag shows that are targeted at young children. And in one instance, a pride event was even being promoted by a satanic temple in the state of Idaho. So as good Catholics, how do we combat these such clear evils and, you know, these people who, who are attacking the innocence of our young children? Yes, I think first and foremost, Christian parents uh, really have to understand the vocation that they have received to, to guard the innocence of their children. I think as Christians throughout our communities, we have to understand that the spiritual battle that's before us. St. Paul reminds us that our battle is not with human beings, with flesh and blood, with, but with powers and principalities, which means we have to pray, we have to fast, we have to stand up and speak truth and love, we have to defend truth, we have to use the process of laws and policies that have been established in our society in order to bring about even greater good. So I think the idea or, or the possibility of, of a Christian being passive in the past is, is over. <laughs> if we're going to be Christians now, if we're going to take our faith seriously, we really are called to be more active, to be more engaged, in order to be, to be involved, to find out what's happening. A lot of these situations and, and various things that we see with, with the LGBTQ plus movement, uh, and, and the list goes on, by the way, as you, you've described some. I mean, there are a whole list of people, you know, therapists being brought into public schools without parental knowledge and, and coaching and, and counseling, uh, you know, young people uh, to, to uh, you know, these gay uh, proms that some high schools are having now and so on. So we see this all throughout the board. And a lot of times parents don't even know this is happening. So I think that we're aware of some of this because of the, you know, the, the context in which the pandemic placed us, where parents were now paying a little more attention. And so I would encourage parents to, to keep that attentiveness, as well as any Christian who cares about the common good, as, as we all should. We were called to be good Samaritans, so to pay attention, to speak the truth, to, to make sure that we're calling upon the spiritual resources, using those in, in terms of a spiritual response, but also, you know, finding our tongues and our backbones and, and speaking the truth and defending it. Right. Father Kirby, you have so many good insights to share. Where can people find your book? 
Yeah, so the book's available through the publisher, uh, St. Benedict Press, uh, TAM Books, uh, or any local Catholic bookstore, as well as through uh, Amazon. Mm, wonderful. Well, Father Jeff Kirby, thank you so much for joining us, author of Sanctify Them in Truth. God bless you. Thanks, Prudence. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.